Hi, this is Ivarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. While I was attending UC Berkeley, one of the jobs that I had there that helped put me through school was working in the lab tech in the darkroom at the Graduate School of Journalism. It was there that I met today's guest, Ken Light, who for the last four decades has been working as a documentary photographer. Now, he's taken his camera all over the country and he's told some important stories from events in the Appalachians to the Mississippi Delta to a death row in Texas and more recently in Central California. Ken has been using his camera to give voice to people who otherwise don't have a voice and to tell stories that oftentimes just fall beneath the radar and don't end up in newspapers or or magazines. But nevertheless, they are really important stories. And Ken has made it his life's work to use his camera for that purpose. I've been following Ken's work for a long time, and even though it's been some years since I had the last chance to talk to him, I was really glad that this show provided me the opportunity to reconnect and to hear more about his story and the recent work that he's doing. So, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Ken Light. Well, Ken, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's been a long time since I had a chance to talk to you, so so welcome. Thank you so much. Yes, it has been a long time. It's nice to renew our friendship. One of the things that uh, that I learned about you is that you grew up in New York and your grandfather grew had a furniture store there. And yes. you talked about that walking into that world was a real revelation for you and eventually it's going to spur an interest in in exploring other worlds can you talk about that time in your life and why it was so pivotal for you yeah so i i was born in the bronx um and when i was three my parents like folks in their generation uh moved out to suburbia i grew up on long island uh in a suburban house that was built in what, what had once been the potato fields of, of Long Island. And so it w- were all new homes, all new families, all young kids. My dad continued to work in, in Manhattan. My grandfather, who had come from uh, Eastern Europe, had a uh, very large furniture store in what was then called Spanish Harlem, 116th Street in, in Harlem. And when I got old enough, you know, probably uh, seven or eight years old, I would, I would, on the weekends, go in with my dad to the store. And, of course, that was a completely mind-altering. I mean, you don't realize it when you're seven years old. But compared to the completely white suburban life that I had been moved into, going into Harlem and seeing uh, just the people on the street, the cars, the, the music coming out of the windows, the life, uh, it was incredibly lively. I remember distinctly that right across the street from the store was a flop house where my dad would describe where men would go and pay 25 cents a night for a little tiny room and a bed. You know, seeing that world was for a young kid and, and going back over and over years, year after year was an incredible experience. My, my grandfather had a porter who, uh, his name was um, Willie, who kind of was, was old at that point, and my grandfather kept employing him, and he sat by the furnace to keep warm. And, and he, of course, mm-hmm. had lots of incredible knowledge about the world, Willie Gray. And, and to even see that, you know, here's this old black man who's working for my grandfather and kind of schlepping and lifting furniture. And so it, it really um, gave me a very different view from that kind of suburban uh, upbringing that my parents had kind of given me. And I think it made me conscious of others, that there are others who, who are struggling, whose lives are different. That, that definitely has been a continuing thread in my, uh, my photography over the last uh, 40 years. Did you find that photography provided you what you've referred to often as, as the voice because words were insufficient for you? Did you find that, you know, in your youth when you would try to explain where you had been or the experience that you had that they always seemed to fall short is that one of the reasons why you you thought a camera would be a good tool for you to be able to express that i think that's part of it my my dad was an amateur photographer so he was always taking motion pic 16 millimeter motion picture of our family and 35 millimeter photographs periodically i was allowed to be the family photographer which was 
you know, it's just exciting to have that experience. You not exactly understand what the experience is. And in high school, my senior year, I, I worked with one of my best friends, Carl Goldberg. He had a dark room. His dad had built him a dark room. His dad had passed away, but there was a dark room in his basement of his house. And, and we would go into the, into the dark room and we, we knew absolutely nothing about what we were doing. Um, I, I remember the first time we developed Triax film at 100 degrees. You know, we mixed up the developer. We, we did not have any sense that you're supposed to cool it down. I guess we probably didn't read the directions. And the film, you know, of course, completely came out overexposed. So that was our, our first darkroom attempt. It really was when I went off to college in 1969 that photography really became a powerful voice for me. And earlier in high school, you know, I, I just... I mean, I made pictures, but it wasn't really, it wasn't passionate. I didn't really know anything about photography. I don't really recall seeing photography shows in museums. I don't think it was really exhibited that widely. Um, I mean, we would go to the MoMA or the, or the Guggenheim uh, or the Whitney with, with my family. And I, I don't really remember seeing photography. I mean, I saw a lot of paintings. But heading off to college in 69... Of course, it was an incredible moment for young people. That summer before college, I had gone to Woodstock without a camera to listen to the music. Heading off to college, the anti-war movement was beginning to build tremendously. You know, at that age, at 18 years old, if you didn't go to college, you were drafted and you went into the army and there was a good chance you would go off to Vietnam. So when I got there, I threw myself into... Um, organizing with uh, with people who became uh, good friends uh, on on the campus. Uh, I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and I majored in uh, government and sociology. And really, it was probably maybe four or five months into my career in college that I, I embraced photography, and it just was um, I don't know how do you describe it. It was cool. You had, you know, you had an identity. I'm a photographer. You had kind of a calling. I began to learn about some of the photographers in, in the history, in the canon. Robert Kappa and Louis Hine, Dorothy Lang were some of the early photographers I, I saw and, and heard about. I remember when East 100th Street came out and when Tulsa came out and with Conversations with the Dead by Danny Lyon. I mean, all those books were kind of seminal books in my formation of kind of a vision of what a photographer could do and what a project what was about. What, what resonated with you with those books? I mean, the Bruce Davidson book, the East 100th Street, and, and many of the ones that you mentioned, they were exploring communities. They were revealing people that most people probably weren't privy to at all. I'm sure it connected to you in terms of what you had experienced in in your youth. But when you saw those photographs, what was the spark that you felt like, God, this is something that I wanted to do? What was it about the work that clicked with you in a way that other work that was being produced, maybe at newspapers or elsewhere, just wasn't wasn't doing it for you? Well, I think that up to that point, probably I had largely been seeing a photo here or a photo there. And so, I mean, there were certain images of my generation that kind of blew me away and drew me in. So, you know, the, the photograph, Eddie Adams' photograph of, of the Viet Cong terrorist being shot and Nick Utt's photograph of the young girl being napalmed and the famous photograph of Lee Harvey Oswald being shot. And, I mean, there were some incredibly very, very powerful image. Charles Moore's uh, pictures in life of Selma, Alabama and the fire hoses knocking down the civil rights demonstrators. And, you know, I, I looked at life as a young kid. It, was, it came into our home, so I was aware of some of the... I mean, I didn't really know the names of those photographers, but I saw the, saw the images. I mean, I saw the Gene Smith images and, and Larry Burroughs and, you know, these uh, other photographers. But there always were few pictures, one picture. And to see a body of work, I mean, to see East 100th Street, in which the photographer is, has spent years and has... Uh, this masterwork of many, many photographs sequenced, the, the incredible presentation. I think all three of those books have incredible presentations as objects. Uh, so it's not only the photographs, it's kind of the packaging, the objects, the here's the book, here's the story, here's the photographer's vision. And yes, the communities in which they, they look, looked at, 
uh, other than Larry Clark, who, I mean, that was his own world of, of drug addicts. But to even see within that world, I mean, drugs were all around me at college. But to really even think about diving into that kind of community and really spending months, if not years, kind of looking at that world was, very, to me, much more appealing than getting an assignment from an editor and going out for four hours and coming back with one or two good pictures. It, it kind of, it was almost like a college class getting those books. Did you have um, a project that at some point, maybe not so much in college, but maybe later on where you felt like you had immersed yourself in, into a, into a world much like that, but that where you found that you finally felt that you had developed a, a, a voice because I'm sure you explored different stories, but was there one sort of pivotal one that was a breakthrough for you? It's interesting because I, I was working on many different kind of multiple projects. And so I would kind of, the early work, which I'm, this book that I'm working on right now, was is going to be stringing together just a lot of different places I went. And so I, I wouldn't say I was smart enough to, to know I was focusing on this age, this period of time and, and developing a project. I just would go. I would go to veterans' homes where Republican candidates might come to speak. I went to Nixon's inauguration. I went to uh, photograph the return of the POWs. I, of course, photographed many demonstrations and riots. I went to Appalachia. I, I went to Detroit and St. Louis, uh, photographed in the Soulard, the white Appalachian community um, on the shores of, of the Mississippi and St. Louis. I photographed the Black Panthers. So I was doing a lot of different thing, things. Probably the two earliest projects I did, one was a project on high school. That was probably my earliest body of work. And I had myself just recently come out of high school and I started photographing in DeWitt Clinton in the Bronx. And I got permission to, to go into that school and photograph. And then I photographed a suburban school on Long Island. And then I began to photograph other high schools. So I probably went to 15 high schools to photograph. Um, and the idea was to create a book about the high school experience, what it was like. And partly it was my own experience that the things you learn in high school don't necessarily teach you the things you need to have in life. And, and certain things that we were being taught seemed completely idiotic. And particularly when, when you go to a, a ghetto school like DeWitt Clinton in the Bronx uh, which was a huge school. I think it had three or 4,000 students, all male, all, uh, you know, it must have been 95% black men. And, you know, there were gangs in the school. And there they're sitting, learning about um, grasshoppers. I mean, that was, that was just a weird experience. So that was really probably my first project. And sadly, um, I went to uh, Harper and Row at that point. And, you know, I'm probably 19 years old. Harper and Rowe had a project, a book project, and they were publishing some books. And I went to Harper and Rowe with the project. And the editor who was overseeing the project loved the photographs and said, yes, this is great. We should do this book. But you need to make more pictures. We need to have more pictures. And I was young, and I had already moved on to something else, which was my next project that I, that I started. And I basically said, I'm finished, which was dumb, of course, because <laughs> the, the photographs have never, have never been published as a book. And they're wonderful, wonderful photographs of that period of time. I moved on to another project, which was photographing in a shoe factory in Ohio, in uh, Appalachian, Ohio. And I, I would say that that shoe factory project was really, really, really where I learned a lot about photography. Because I was kind of locked into this space. It was a three-story building. Um, I, I kind of would photograph around the building and some peripheral things like workers who might get married, I'd go to their weddings, or they had a baseball team. But largely, I was stuck in this factory. And I'd go every day photographing. And, you know, at certain points, I'd be like, I've taken every picture there is to be taken of this place. And then I would realize I, I hadn't, that that was the learning curve, that I had to get over that hump of where I thought I had photographed everything because I just wasn't seeing everything that was there. Though I, I would say those two projects were probably the place where I really learned to be a photographer. And I would say those two experiences have uh, served me well in other projects and other bodies of work that I, that I have done. Tell me about 
how discovering the story during the process of photographing it has has worked for you. Um, you you're you're going into into projects, you know, with with in several of your book projects like Delta Time, Texas Death Row, To the Promised Land. These are are, are very sort of big stories on, on on the surface, and then when you start delving into it and you start exploring it, there's a story that you, you discover that there's no way that you could expect to be able to predict its existence when you even before you made the first photograph. Can you tell us about what your process is in terms of keeping yourself open to those opportunities so you can make those images so you're not just making the obvious photographs but also making the unexpected but important images as well? Yeah, so I I usually go in with I don't know a mantra or a storyline in my head. I I I'm unfortunately not the photographer that spends months doing research. And I much prefer being curious, being observant, going into a place and either discovering on my own or letting the voices that I encounter while out photographing point me in in various different directions. And I think part of the excitement of doing photography is that excitement of of the new discovery, of finding out there's something happening that you didn't know was, was happening. And that, you know, is either that constantly being on. And I find when I'm out in the field photographing, I mean, I'm on every, every moment I'm on. There isn't a moment that I'm not observing and looking and watching. And that's not to say I don't miss things. And I, I, I remember in, um, when, when I was doing Delta Time in, in Mississippi, you know, there would be things I would just drive by constantly and not stop and make a photograph. And it might take me two years to finally, like, all of a sudden look up and go, whoa, there's a picture. And I had been going past it, you know, week after week, just not really seeing it. And so that, again, is part of that exciting discovery that uh, sometimes the commonplace thing that you pass by can really reap incredible images. I mean, I I think a lot of, um, and I'm a black and white photographer, but I love the work of William Eggleston. And I think a lot of Eggleston, just the commonplace things that are almost so silly have made incredible Eggleston photographs that you think, you know, why didn't I, why didn't I see that? You know, I, I think of the photograph, there's a, there's a wonderful photograph of an open freezer just filled with ice, you know, where you need to go in with a hammer and a, and a screwdriver and knock the ice out of your freezer and it just, it's open and it's all, you know, completely filled with ice and there's little like TV dinner boxes sticking out of the ice. And it's just a wonderful, simple photograph that takes a just incredibly attuned photographer to, to be cautious of. Trying to get in that zone and, and trying to listen very clearly to people's voices. And um, I'm naturally curious and I'm interested in learning. And I'm really interested in learning not by reading what other people have said, by discovering it myself. And yeah. so that's, that, that's really informed my work. One of my favorite books of yours is, is Delta Time. Why don't you tell us the story in terms of why you decided to go down there and photograph it and what that experience was, was like for you in terms of building the relationships there and, and making the f- photographs? As I was in the process of working with Aperture to do uh, To the Promised Land, which is my book about uh, immigrants coming through the California border and Texas into, into uh, the U.S., I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. You know, what was my next project? What, what was I interested in? And at that time, it was the height of apartheid in South Africa, which was something I was really, really concerned with. And I, and I really felt that there hadn't, at least I had not seen a body of work that really put a human face on the issue of apartheid. Now, of course, it existed David Goldblatt and Peter Magubani and other photographers, Ernest Cole. I mean, you know, they had all done this, but it was it hadn't reached America. We hadn't really seen those bodies of work. And I think a lot of the work I saw in the U.S. Um, might be in Time Magazine or um, Newsweek, and it was always very short. And you know, I felt like it needed to be seen. And so I was kind of thinking about this the summer that I was really deeply, deeply contemplating that project, I was working at Berkeley in a minority journalism program that the university sponsored. And the program was to take young minority journalists or young minority 
kids and train them in a very, very intense summer program. And then they would be placed in newspapers because the problem with newspapers was that there was no diversity. So newspapers had basically were white men and some white women writing stories about everything. And there were very few people of color in these newspapers writing about their own communities or giving that voice. And so I, I was hired to be part of this program. And it was made up of these amazing, I mean, I, I ended up being the minority in the minority journalism program. Everyone else, I was the only white guy. Everyone else were, you know, Latino and black and Asian journalists of the highest caliber. So you're talking about editors from Newsweek, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, the New York Times, who would come in for the summer and train these kids. The other faculty became friends of mine. And uh, in particular, there was a woman by the name of Ira Hadnot, who uh, works at the Dallas Morning News. And I think she was there at that time. And she, we became good friends. I liked her a lot. And she's very, very smart. She had very thick Coke bottle glasses, but she was a wonderful writer and very well respected. And so she, one, you know, one day we're having this chat. She asked me what I was going to do. And I, and I told her. And she looked at me and she said, well, why, why go to South Africa? Why don't you go to Mississippi? And I'm like, what do you mean, why don't I go to Mississippi? What are you talking about? Because I had never really seen anything about I mean, you know, there wasn't really anything on 60 Minutes. There, was, there weren't story in the magazines. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have the internet yet, right? So what's being pushed at us by the legacy media at that time, there was really nothing about uh, Mississippi. So she said you know, it, it, it hasn't changed. It's incredibly segregated. You know, there's a black side of town, there's a white side of town. People are still picking cotton. Well, they're not handpicking it, but they're working in the cotton. And it's incredibly racist. And she just went on and on and on and on. And it was kind of like, whoa. You know, I thought in my mind, well, I'm, I'm really an American photographer. I mean, all my work up to that point and to this point continues to be about America. And that's really my interest because I've always believed politically that we should look at our own backyard before we start looking at other people's backyard, which is not how America works. We usually look at other people's backyard and tell them what to do, and we never really look in our own backyard. But my philosophy has been that's what you need to do in a civilized culture. Her comment kind of piqued my interest, and I said to her, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So, Ira, I love your writing. You're a brilliant writer. Why don't we do this? And, and she had been born in Mississippi. Why don't we do this project together? I could, I'll take the pictures and then you can write. And this look of horror came over her face. I mean, absolute horror. And I'm like, Ira, what's wrong? And she looked at me. She says, I could never go back to Mississippi. Never. I'm a professional, well-respected black woman. And once I step over that line into Mississippi, I just become another crushed minority. Yeah. And that statement, I mean, that was, that was really a powerful statement to me. And I thought, wow, there's a story there. There's a powerful story there that I need, I need to go see. And that kind of formed the, the, the seed that took me to Mississippi. I will never forget that first trip because it was right after the movie Mississippi Burning had been released, which was a very powerful movie. It's, it's a very... The story is problematic because it portrays the FBI as being the friends of the civil rights movement. And, you know, they were trying to, to help, help protect civil rights workers. I mean, it was, it, that whole part of the story was completely made up about Hollywood. And the protagonist in the, in the civil rights story, of course, was a white guy. The black people struggling for civil rights were kind of just a background noise. But it was one of the first examinations of the civil rights movement and in particularly of what happened in Mississippi with the three young civil rights workers who were, who were killed by the Klan. And so that movie came out to a lot of publicity. And of course, that's when I took off to go to Mississippi, which is not exactly the good time to go <laughs> because, you know, it's kind of like you're waving a flag and I, I don't like to wave flags. I like to just go very quietly and do my work and not stir anything up, be in a way invisible. Partly in reaching out into the communities that I was photographing, which were the black communities in the Mississippi Delta. Obviously, I'm a white photographer. You just can't walk in. I mean, I guess you can, but my way of working is not just to walk in usually. 
the movie comes out and I make these connections with these organizations, nonprofit organizations working in the Delta who have been working there for decades. And, you know, part of it is trying to explain to them that you're serious. You're going to do a book. You're not just like this photographer who's parachuting in and immediately leaving and you don't really care about what happens and you don't want to understand what's happening and you're not making a commitment. So the hardest part was convincing them that I was genuine and I was able to do that. And those community organizations and those people that I met basically were my guides in both educating me, telling me what was happening and answer my questions because I had lots of questions after I would observe things on the ground. A lot of times they would, they would be with me and introduce me to their friends. They would watch out for me and, and they were an integral part of, of doing that, that book. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, whether you've never had a website before, or you have a website now and you're just not happy with it, either because of the way it looks or because you have to do so much work in order to maintain the site, well, why don't you try Squarespace and find out how easy it is to build and maintain a website? The drag-and-drop interface and the, and the beautiful templates they provide you make it so easy to be able to create a website that just looks good straight out of the box. And even if you have any moments where you're struggling trying to figure something out, well, that's what makes Squarespace even better because you have 24-7 support. So if you have any questions about designing your site or maintaining your site or integrating some tool into it, well, Squarespace is there to support you and help you. How many website design platforms offer you that? 24-7 support. So if you've been hesitating about trying out Squarespace or even building your own website, well, why don't you try it now? Because it's free to try. All you all you have to do is to sign up for a free account is go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code candid frame five and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code candid frame five everything you need to create an exceptional website. The Texas Death Row uh, project. Yeah. Uh, talk about getting access. I mean, that, I don't know if you really could do that story today. No, I don't, I don't think you could, you could do it. And I don't think you could do it when I did it. But, you know, it's kind of these moments. I think of Danny Lyon doing Conversations with the Dead which was, you know, years and years before my project. And it was the same sort of thing. It was just a fluke, a fluke, ta- a fluke moment. Someone just, for whatever reason, lets their guard down. You know, they're, they're, they're open to a photographer coming in and, and you, you, happen to, you happen to be the person. You happen to step into that. And the access came about through the writer, Suzanne Donovan. And Suzanne and I were old colleagues from the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And Suzanne had since left Berkeley, and she was working in Texas. Um, and she had been the director of the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union in Texas for a number of years. And literally one day she called me and she said, Ken, I hate Texas, but I feel like I need to do something before I leave. I need to make a, I'm, I need to, need to make a statement about what's happening in Texas. And I want to do this book on Texas Death Row. Will you do the photographs? And, of course, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, sure, that's ever going to happen. It's, it's so hard to even get into a prison. To get into a death row is virtually impossible. No one had ever gotten into a death row with a camera. There had been a few photographers that had photographed, you know, in the, in the uh, visiting room. You know, and I know Danny had a picture of old Sparky, but didn't get into death row. I'm, I'm like, this is never going to happen. But I said, yes. And Suzanne spent many months. Now, she was very well connected politically within Texas, having been at the ACLU. And she was able to find the right person who was close to the head of the the prison system, Texas Department of Criminal Justice. This woman was owed a favor by the head of the prison system. And she went to him and basically said, these people are good people. They're interested in doing a project about Texas death row. And it's not about the guards. It's about who the men are and what their world is about. And he said, yes, which was shocking, really. Literally, 
Suzanne called me and said, he said, yes. And I'm like, what does that mean? Does it mean like we're doing one day? Can we go for a week? I mean, what does it mean? She says, I don't know. He said, yes. So we both went to Huntsville, which is where all, where it's kind of most of the, the prisons in Texas are. Um, and where, uh, at that time, Texas death row was located in the Ellis one unit to meet with the director, Wayne Scott, to kind of, I guess, go over the ground rules. So how long can we come? What can we do? And uh, I, I will never forget arriving in his office, walking into the secretary's outer office. And the secretary says, uh, you know, we said, we're here to see the director. Uh, she says, oh, yes. Um, he had to leave town in an emergency. I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, I know this is never going to happen. But the prison PR people are waiting in his office, and they know you have unlimited access Wow. Now that's a word photographers like to hear. I don't even know what it means, but a limited access is a good word. So we walk into the director's office and I, I like to, I, I should have taken photographs, but I like to describe it. You know, it was your typical Texas prison official's office with a barbed wire collection and, a, 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 you know, a longhorn steer antlers on the ceiling with, you know, a hat on it and a Remington rifle on the wall. And here are these two PR guys sitting there and they're just looking at us with lightning bolts coming out of their eyes. I mean, they are so mad, you know, and, and they want to know, you know, how did you get access? And we're like, you know what? All you need to know is we have unlimited access. That's what the director has said. And we never, we never spoke to him. We never learned if he only meant us to be there for one day I made arrangements to come back for a week, seven days. I mean, I remember I said, I'm going to be here. I spoke, they took us out to the prison. I met the warden. We did a walkthrough to see what it was about. And then the warden said, how long do you want to come? And I said, I'll come for a week. And he said, okay, you'll be here for five days. And I said, no, a week, seven days. He says, okay, when you come back, you just meet the sergeant who oversees death row and he'll let you, he'll take you into the, into death row to photograph. I went that first week for seven days, and then I was able to come back a second time for a second trip in April of 94, when I witnessed an, uh, an inmate being executed and photographed the path he took to the, to the execution. They don't, they don't allow executions to be photographed. They were not very happy, the, the guards that I, that I witnessed that and photographed it inside the prison. And so I didn't even think I was going to come back for a third trip, but I was able to say I'm coming back, and I came back for a third trip. And it was kind of clear that, that after that third trip that they were, they were trying to make it difficult for me. You know, they would make me stand outside for two and a half hours before they would let me in. They would say, oh, they didn't have anyone to assist me. And so it was clear that third trip was kind of the, the last trip. Mm -hmm. But I had photographed every single day as if it was my last day. So that first trip, that first day I went into death row, I thought they're never going to let me in a second day. There's no way, no. right? But then they let me in a second day, and I figured they'd never let me in a third day. So I just shot every day from morning to night as much as I could and try to see as much as I could. When they let me in the second time, it, it was the same experience. You know, okay, they're never going to let me in. And, you know, I, I, I just kept figuring one day someone was going to say, why are they still here? Someone was going to call the director, right? But then you, But then you realize that the prison system is like the army. And when the, when the president tells the general we're going to war and the general then through the ranks tells, you know, it ends up with the private and the private's told, go take that hill. And the private thinks to himself, I'm going to die. The private does not call the president and say, wait a minute, I'm going to die. I'm not doing this. You, they, they do it. And so there's this kind of military thing. So we realized that once the director had said unlimited access, pretty much no one was going to call the director back and say, so exactly what does that mean? What was so, the reaction to the, to, the, to the book when it came out? Did you ever hear in terms of what the, how we, the people in Texas responded you know, to it? We, we didn't hear any objections. We thought that the book, we, we, had, we had told every inmate that we had photographed and interviewed that we'd get them a copy of the book. And it's very hard to get books into, into a prison. And we thought that they would not allow the book into the prison, but, but they did. The inmates, we heard a lot from the inmates. The inmates really liked the book a lot. And one of the things we had to do in sending in the book was to find out 
if the inmate wanted the book or the inmate wanted it sent to someone else, because there were a number of inmates who were about to be executed before the book came out, and we wanted to make sure a family member got the book if, if that's what they wanted or a friend. There were a couple of pictures in the book that the inmates were really pissed off about. And so we didn't, we tried not to censor the book. We tried to, what we, what we saw or what I saw and what I photographed, we wanted to be truthful. And if there were things that, I wouldn't say derogatory, but if there were, there were moments in which the inmates kind of re- revealed themselves that were maybe more shocking. So, you know, inmates had pornography, for example, which was very, very easy to get into the prison. If you try to get a Shakespeare book into prison, it would take months and months and months. But if it was a pornographic magazine, it would come in in a matter of hours. And so, you know, there were pictures of inmates holding, one inmate, Jack Smith, holding a porno, a porno magazine. That was really not Playboy, beyond Playboy. And, you know, the inmates were, were, they found that offensive to have it in the book, mainly because they said they couldn't send the book to their mothers, mm. which was kind of ironic. We heard from a couple of guards that said they liked the book. We didn't really hear, you know, they, there was really no public comment on the book. You know, we did, we traveled a lot and talked about it in Texas. And, you know, the biggest thing was people wanted to know, why didn't we show the victims? And we said, that's a different book. It's really not about the victims. We know they're victims and it's horrific what these men have done and it's horrible, but this is not what the book's about. It's really about that place, death, the institution of the death penalty in America and, and what it's about. Well, your most recent book, Valley of Shadows and Dreams, uh, why don't you tell us about that? And, and since so many of your, your bodies of, of work have been made into, into books, can you talk to us about why that's important to you in terms of being able to, to share the work? Let me start with the book question, which is, you know, you work on a body of work, you spend years, and most of my books have been four years or longer, four and a half years. And not that I am there four and a half years photographing. I'm, I, I teach as a professor at Berkeley, so I'm, I'm teaching and I go in and out of the project and, you know, editing when, I'm during, when school's on and, and printing and selecting and then uh, traveling during the summers and winters. So you create a selection. I mean, you have a story in your, in your mind of, of what you're trying to capture and what you're trying to say with, with your voice as a photographer. And you're, sequ- you're sequencing the photographs to tell that story. For me, the, the book is really the fully seen body of work. And the problem is, you know, most, I mean, it's, it's hard to find venues. Most museums are not going to show the full body of work. So the new project, Valley of Shadows and Dreams, just had a show at the Oakland Museum in California it was a one-person show, and they showed 31 pictures. The book has 113 images. The um, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art bought 12 prints for their collection from 113 pictures and then exhibited four of those pictures from the book. So Newsweek, The Daily Beast online ran a multimedia piece on the project, and they probably ran 15 pictures. Center for Investigative Report, reporting the California Watch, did a a multimedia piece, I think it was around 13 minutes, and they probably used 18 pictures with our vo- myself and, and Melanie, who did the writing, talking about it. The New York Times ran four pictures in the Sunday review section. People are seeing little pieces of it, and those little pieces are curated by other people. So the New York Times is saying, these are the pictures we want. And the, the, the curator at the MoMA in San Francisco is saying, these are the 12 pictures that I like or maybe I like and can afford. And the curator at the Oakland Museum is saying, well, this is the space we have and we only can show 31 pictures. Done this whole body of work. What do you do with it? How do, how do you get that whole body of work seen? And even if you get all 113 pictures shown in a museum, maybe it's up for, I think the, the Oakland Museum show was up for... I want to say six months, and then it's gone. They're not doing a catalog. They're choosing one or two images that are kind of the face of the show that, you know, are in their PR, that go on their website, etc. And so the book is really the fully seen body of work. The, the, the way you see the images sequenced, it's your edit, it's the captions that you feel you want people to get tied with the with the. Uh, images. It's 
the text that you feel the work needs. And so Valley of Shadows and Dreams was really initiated by my wife, Melanie, because of some travel she took into the Central Valley to, to write a piece about the photographer Hansel Meath, who was a California photographer who was the second photographer hired at Life magazine. He was very, very political. Melanie was asked to write a piece about this for a big show at the Museum of Photographic Arts in San Diego about pioneering women photojournalists. And there was a story about Hansel having, while she and her husband Otto Hagel were working in the fields during the cotton strike in the Central Valley, that Hansel had had a baby and that that baby had been run over by a tractor while they were working in the fields. Yeah. And this was a story, this was a story that she told later in, late in her life. And, and I, I had become good, very, very dear friends with Hansel in the 70s. And, and when Me Melanie and I got married, Melanie got to know Hansel. We had never heard this story until she got very old. And people didn't really know if it was true, if it was a story in her mind, if it was, what was it? So Melanie had gone into the valley to kind of research this uh, story. You know, we, we live in California. We drive, I want to say, past the valley. So it's located on the route from the Bay Area to Los Angeles. And there's a, there's a freeway called Highway 5 that you can go 90 miles an hour. And it takes about five and a half hours to get to L.A., and the only time you get off into the Central Valley is if you have to go to the bathroom and you, or you need a big gulp to drink or you need a bag of pretzels or lunch. And even then, it's, it's you know, it's the fast food places, uh, the 7-Elevens, and you're really not venturing into the valley. But yet the valley is produces 50 percent of the food in America and it uses enormous quantities of water and it has a huge rate of asthma. And, and it's also very Republican. So it's the red part of California. Even though California largely votes Democratic, the Valley is uh, very re Republican. And there's, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of undocumented workers working in the fields and a lot of poverty. It's being called the New Appalachia. And so Melanie came back from this trip and said, this was uh, six years ago, wow, you need to go into the Valley because it's really weird. They're building all these new houses and they're taking over the farmland, which is, I mean, isn't, isn't there something like food security? Don't we need to know in America that we can actually grow our own food and not import it all? And who's buying these houses? These houses are $250,000, $300,000, $400,000. How are farm workers, how are Pepsi-Cola truck drivers affording those kind of houses? And why are they building them? And they're not conscious that there's a drought going on. So we went into the valley, Melanie to write and, and me to photograph before the recession. So this is, this is when the boom is happening. And in fact, we, we know that part of the recession came from the housing market bust, which was usually based in the central valley. And in fact, when the interest rates shifted, all these people who had bought houses with no money down, who had no credit, who were sold mortgages, got foreclosed and the whole thing crashed. So we got in as it rose and then we were there working when it, when it crashed. And of course, as we worked, as in all my projects, there's, there's so many different paths that you discover that you didn't even know when you went, went in. So the, the drought happened and... There were clusters of illnesses because of this, uh, people suspected pesticides and issues with water, poisoned water and poisoned air and asthma and industrial agriculture and immigration and democracy, where there were uh, early on in the project, there were these huge uh, immigration marches where all the undocumented workers kind of came out of hiding and, and had, they had the largest uh, march, protest march in the history of Fresno, for example. And it was, you know, am amazing to see. The project just kind of went on. And then the book became kind of the voice of the project, but just a small piece of it, because all these other pieces that, I, that I've talked about, the New York Times using the work and Huffington Post and Newsweek and, and even the video that CRR made al allowed us to have a voice about this issue and try to raise concerns that we were witnessing as Californians uh, in our own state.
You know, one of the people who was an inspiration for you and you had the opportunity to meet him was Gordon Parks, whose mm-hmm. one of his biographies was called uh, A Choice of Weapons. And yes. that that name, that the title of the book was something that, that he realized that he had a choice in terms of combating a lot of the injustices he saw, either with a gun or with a camera, and he chose a, a camera. And I think that a lot of your work has been in the spirit of much of the work that Gordon and and other photographers have done. At this point, when you take a look at your body of of work, what do you you feel you've brought to the table? Because you've, beyond just the individual subject matter, what is your hoping, what are you hoping that, that this work as a body of work, what difference are you hoping that those images and the stories that they've told have, what do you hope that they've made? I've come to believe part of my work is about witnessing that things, things happen in America and people's lives are altered by events that are very personal, where they're born and what's happening at that, with the economy and, and so forth. And I really feel that a lot of times those stories disappear, those stories, and maybe they didn't even exist. I mean, you turn on the popular media and you don't see any of these people, even though they make up a majority of America. The recession, I think, is a really good example where there's so many people who have been hit by the recession and, and all we tend to see are the numbers. You know, this many people are no longer looking for jobs. Well, who are those people and where are they? And why don't we see, why don't we see them? Numbers are, they don't really mean anything. I mean, they do mean something, but they're, they're, not, they're not real. So I think partly it's both to witness those events because photography is such a powerful medium. It's real. It's there. You can show a picture and people understand that it's, it's not a statistic, that it, 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 it's very, very real. Um, so it's partly, in a way, in a historical record. You know, you think about in 100 years, people looking back at your photographs. And I know particularly my project to the promised land that I did in the early 80s, which looks at a huge wave of immigration at that time, massive wave of Im- immigration at that time, uh, maybe the largest in, in, in the last many, many decades. People who came during that time and generations before and generations after, those children, those grandchildren, those great-grandchildren, generations later, are going to really wonder what that experience was about because they're going to be so far away about so far away from that experience. And I know for myself as an immigrant, and my family came from Eastern Europe in the late 1800s, fleeing persecution and pogroms. We have no visual record. We have hardly any stories about the journey. I mean, we have no stories about the journey. We know, we can't remember. We, we know that our family came, but we have no idea how they, did they come through Ellis Island. We have stories about you know, ships and jumping off of ships near Florida. I mean, there's all these, but no one knows if they're true. And there's, and there's absolutely no visual record of it at all. We know that some of them came on the steerage. And of course, there's that wonderful Stieglitz photograph of the steerage. But the steerage photograph is really more about the art of Stieglitz than it is about the poor people stuck in the steerage. We have no pictures of the villages the rural villages they came from, from Latvia and Poland and Alsace-Lorraine, there's nothing, there's, there's no images. So the power of the image is to both tell the story in a contemporary time, but also as a record of the human condition and what we've done and what we've been responsible for, to look back and to learn, but to, but to not forget. Well, my final question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? A photographer who became a very, very good friend of mine. It was just by, I kind of knew a little bit about his work, is Ken Schles. And we became acquainted two years ago. We both were uh, asked to come to turkey to a big photo festival to be master speakers and we became acquainted in 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 turkey and uh ken did a really wonderful book called invisible city which is just about to be reprinted by steidel and it came out 20 i think it came out 20 years ago and it's about ken's journey as a young man in the lower east side in new york in alphabet city and which was completely falling apart and there were derelict 
burned down buildings and junkies on the street. And, and Ken was a young art student living in like, you know, that kind of environment. And he photographed, he had been a student or was a student at uh, uh, Cooper Ewart doing photography. And it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful book. And it's a very, very powerful body of photographs autobiographical but just really wonderful images and he's gone on to do a lot of other books that are really fascinating uh he's very smart he would be a really interesting person to talk to it would be very different than me he's not really a documentary photographer well i look forward to checking out his work but i really like his work awesome so where can people go to find out more about everything that you've that you've been doing so you can go to my website kenlight.com and you can see all my books and bodies of work and the most recent book, Valleys of Shadows and Dreams, you can obviously get an Amazon or from Heyday, who's the publisher, and it's almost sold out. There's probably less than 100 copies of the book left. So your viewers, your listeners might want to grab a copy before it's gone. Okay. And, and those are the best places to see my work. They all might, if they're interested in documentary photography, they all also might want to read my uh, Witness in Our Time, Lives of Documentary Photographers, which is a text I wrote, which is interviews with about 26 renowned photographers from Sebastio Salgado to Susan Marcellus, Peter Magubani, Graciela Interbead, Eugene Richards, and, and it's um, written narratives about their paths on documentary photography, how they became photographers and what their paths were, and then sections with some curators like Fred Richin and Ann Tucker, Peter Howe, and a, and a section... It's in a second edition, and the new edition, uh, which came out about, two, I want to say, two years ago, has a section on in the field, which talks about how photographers work in the field. So uh, Bill Owens and Larry Fink are prominent. Don McCullen talks about photographing in way during the Vietnam War. And Ron Partridge, who is the son of Imogene Cunningham and a pre- an amazing photographer who is 94 years old, and was Dorothea Lang's assistant during the FSA and drove her, talks about Dorothea's kind of method of working in the field from his, from his observations. Right. So no, that would be, a, that would be a, a wonderful book for people who really want to learn more about what it is we try to do or we dream of doing. We hope we sometimes accomplish it. Well, I'll have links to all of those on, on the website at thecandidframe.com. So, Ken, right. thank you so much. It was wonderful to have a chance to talk to you and, and to catch up a little bit. So, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod, and this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>